Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 35 through 45. But I'm going to start out by reading verses 32 through 34. And then I'm going to pray. So once you're there, look with me at verse 32, chapter 10. So in this section, Jesus is, again, telling his disciples his purpose in the sense of he came into this world to ultimately die. And so he's, he's telling them again what, what's taking place as they're making their way to Jerusalem to die, for him to die. And so he, he writes, or he said the following, Mark writes, he says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us. Specifically, revealing yourself to us throughout every page and every word of Scripture that you breathed out into holy men so that we might be taught, we might be rebuked, we might be corrected, that we might be trained in righteousness, that we might, Lord, in a simple way, just know what it looks like to follow you. As we come to just a realization of who you are through your word. And Lord, we love you. Lord, we're here today because of you, because you have been at work in our lives, because you have redeemed us, you have saved us, you have changed us. And Lord, we want to know you more. We want to know you more clearly, and we want to faithfully follow you. And so Lord, we ask that your word would produce its intended effect upon us this morning. Lord, create in us just pure hearts. Give us this great passion to follow you, Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I read that section, even though we're not necessarily going to be digging into those verses, because it sort of sets up the next 10 verses that we will be looking at. But one of the things is whenever Jesus sort of foretells of his death, when he's speaking to his disciples, uh, what typically happens is his audience doesn't really get it. They don't, they don't really understand exactly what he means and so they, they're left to kind of figure things out, which sort of makes sense because it just wasn't the right time at the moment. But, but Jesus was preparing them all along for what was going to happen to him. What's interesting about this is that when he foretells of his death, their response also isn't one of comfort. It's not always one of curiosity as well as in the sense of, can you just tell me a little bit more about that? And especially what we see 
in this situation, as we dig into this text, what we find his disciples doing is, is really something that's selfish. We get to see some selfish ambition from his disciples as he just told them that he's going up to Jerusalem so that he would be, su- that he would be ultimately just killed. And he describes it as he's going to be turned over to these men. They're going to flog him. They're going to spit on him. And eventually he's going to die. But what we find out from his disciples in situations like this is that they don't really comfort. Instead, they begin to jockey for position. Because they're misunderstanding, in a sense, what he was telling them. And so what we see here in this text is we see them looking for power, looking for authority, and looking for fame. This is what they thought at the time being a disciple of Jesus Christ was all about. But what we are going to learn this morning from this text is that being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not about those things. It's not about power. It's not about authority. And it's not about fame. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ, if we could say, if we summarize these verses, it's, it's about serving. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not about becoming this great person with great power and having great authority, able to influence tons of people. Instead, what Jesus is going to teach us in this section of Scripture is that being a disciple of Jesus is really about picking up a cross, laying down our lives, denying ourselves, and serving. Serving the Lord and serving others. And ultimately, what we're going to see is it's really about being a slave to all people. But before we jump into our text this morning and learn this truth, I want to ask us to consider a question this morning. Is this how you understand being a disciple of Jesus? When you think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, does serving come to your mind? Does, does it mean being a servant? This is one of the things I've, I've thought about a lot and I think about more and more as a pastor. There's certain things in regards to like what marks a genuine believer. So having been saved for over 20 years and the opportunity and privilege to, to pastor and talk to lots of people and, and learn things and have conversations, one of the marks that I would say is serving. When you, when you think about a genuine believer, somebody who is faithfully saved by Jesus Christ, I, I just feel like, based upon texts like this that we're going to dig into, that, that serving is going to be a mark of that person's life. There's other things for sure, but I, but I think one of the main things that, that we want to be looking for we want to evaluate even our own lives in regards to what it means to follow Jesus is, is just that. Do, do I serve? Do my kids serve? Do you like serving? And obviously we don't always love serving because I'd say serving is, is hard and I have other thoughts on that as well. But the question for you to think about is, is that what you think about when you think about what a genuine follower of Christ looks like? Someone who sacrificially serves others. Do you see yourself as a servant? Or do you see yourself as someone who deserves 
to be served. Now, to be honest with you, I find myself kind of waffling back and forth at different points. Catch me in a bad moment. Walk into the house tired, exhausted. In some ways, I'm, I'm looking to be served. And those are things that I think we have to fight. So again, don't hear me say we, we have to be perfect in this area. I just think when you think about a genuine believer, somebody who trusts in Christ, who is picking up a cross and following Christ, what that typically looks like is a servant. Somebody willing to continually lay down their lives for the good of others. And so we're going to sort of look at this truth this morning by taking a look at two parts to these verses. In the first part, we're going to take a look at a selfish question. So if you're taking notes, I'm sorry I didn't give you any slides this morning. Point one is just a selfish question. So part one, a selfish question. So what we see just after Jesus had told his disciples that they were going to Jerusalem and he was going there to die... What we see is James and John, the son of Zebedee, come up to him and ask him this question. Mark 10, verse 35, they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Kind of an interesting way to kind of propose a question to Jesus, don't you think? It's very similar to maybe your kids coming up to you and saying, Dad, I've got to ask you a question, but I need you to promise to say yes. Maybe your wife might do that once in a while as well. Just knowing that your typical response is to say no, but there's something you really, really want to do, and so you propose it in this way. Okay, I'm going to ask you something, but I need you just to promise that you're going to, you're going to say yes to what I'm asking. Now, you just know from the beginning it's sort of a setup, right? Like, you're just going to be a little bit cautious before you agree to anything because you can't really make that promise without knowing what they're going to ask. Well, in a similar way, James and John, they're, they're, they're trying to make this big request of Jesus by asking him from the outset, we, we need you to do for us whatever, whatever it is that we're about to ask you. It's a bold move on their part. I'd say in some ways it's also a selfish move. But I love Jesus' response because he at least entertained their request because it says this in verse 36. He says, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? See, Jesus, Jesus isn't dumb. He, he knows who he was dealing with. So he just exposes their hearts by asking them the question, what is it that you want? And their response was expected. His disciples didn't want more faith to follow him through suffering and death that he just told them that was going to happen to them. Instead, what they wanted it was fame, power, and authority. Verse 37, they said to him, I imagine with a little bit of caution and maybe a smile on their face sort of just to kind of maybe see if they can sort of manipulate him into giving them what they wanted. So they said to them this, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. James and John wanted to sit with Jesus in all his glory. They didn't want to sit anywhere. They weren't going to be happy just being there with him. They wanted front row seats. And not even front row seats. They wanted the best seats. They wanted to sit on the right. And they wanted to sit on the left of him. This is what we call selfish ambition. 
It's selfish because it's really all about them. Up to this point, Jesus has been very clear with his disciples about who he was and his suffering and the death that awaited him in Jerusalem. But the disciples, they'd failed to understand it. They still sort of thought that, okay, he's going to Jerusalem. These things are going to happen to him, but eventually he's going to rise and eventually he's, he's going to create this new kingdom that overtakes the worldly empire of Rome. It's going to sort of set things right. So in their minds, they're still thinking earthly. They're still thinking about what this might sort of look like. And when this happens, because they knew he was somebody who taught with authority, he was a man who, who had great power in the sense of his ability to heal. And so they understood to a degree, still veiled to it to a degree as well. And so they're still thinking here now, earthly. And they, they want to be on the right and the left when this happens. They want that place of honor. They weren't really preparing for his death. They were preparing for this victory. They recognized that Jesus was the most important person, deserving the most honor. And so they, they were trying to get in on a little bit of that when it took place and when it happened. James Edwards, in his commentary, wrote the following. He said, how easily worship and discipleship are blended with self-interest. Or worse, self-interest is masked as worship and discipleship. So what he's getting at there in some ways is, is the temptation we can all face is to have a little bit of that self-interest or that selfish ambition where, where we get enough of Jesus just to kind of get what we want ultimately at the end of the day. And a lot of times that's revealed when we don't actually end up getting what we want and we're just left with Jesus. So the Lord is good to us to expose sort of that selfish ambition at times. And we see this with the disciples here. Self-interest is easy to spot in James and John's request, but the truth is self-interest lives in all of our hearts and is constantly trying to rear its ugly head. Self-interest always evaluates our life with all of our circumstances and decisions by asking the question, what will I get out of this? Or what's in it for me? Kind of the opposite of serving in many ways, and we'll get into that a little bit later. And so basically self-interest is out to protect self and to promote self and to provide for self. James and John were looking for those things. But, verse 38, Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. You can imagine. Again, we see their lack of understanding. You see their self-interest on full display because they don't understand the cup that Jesus was talking about. They don't understand that that cup was to be filled with God's wrath for their sins. And he was going to drink it all. And the baptism with which Jesus was referring to was his death on a cross for their sins. They're still thinking triumph and, and victory. Jesus is talking about suffering and death. 
And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized, sort of alluding to the sacrifices and suffering that await them as they pick up their cross and follow him. And then he goes on to answer their question about, hey, can we sit at your right and your left? In verse 40, he goes on and he says, but to sit at my right hand and to sit at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. As for the glory that James and John are after, Jesus defers completely to God the Father. The seats that they want will be determined by God the Father and God the Father alone. They won't be given out to the most powerful people or the most famous people, but instead they're reserved for those whom the Lord has chosen. The point Jesus is making here is that we're not to follow him simply because we know in advance that this is going to happen to us when we end up dying or we have this hope of something greater, but we follow him because of who he is. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not, I'm not saying that the promises that God lays out for us in Scripture aren't, aren't real. We're, we're to trust in those promises. But we've been spending our time in Galatians over the last several months now learning that Christ alone is our hope for salvation. The Lord gives us these promises and he gives us the hope of eternal life. But when we think about the life we're called to live, we're called to trust in Christ alone. Our hope must be in Christ alone. And Jesus teaches us this truth in the final part, part number two, which I've just titled a humble answer. So we've had a selfish question. Now part number two, final part is we have a humble answer. And before we think that James and John were really the only ones hoping for this special place of honor, we read the following in verse 41. So after they made this request, Mark writes, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They were angry. They were angry at James and John for sort of cutting them out of the picture. And so if you can imagine there's two seats, there's 12 disciples, and James and John run ahead and they sort of are trying to get the in. You know, this happens a lot if you have kids. It's the first one to call the front seat or whatever. You feel like, like just because you say it first, at least in my house, doesn't mean you get it. But these disciples were playing that game. And then the other disciples hear it and they get angry. And their hearts are exposed here because they too have a similar selfish ambition and desires. They don't want to be left out. So Jesus took advantage of this situation to again teach his disciples what it means to be his disciples. Verse 42 says the following, And Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And so Jesus begins his teaching not by drawing his disciples' attention to God's kingdom, but instead he draws their attention to the world around them. And it's, it's one we're familiar with. It's not one that's unique to the world in which his disciples were living in. He's just saying, look around you. 
The great ones in this world are those who lord their authority over those that they're actually called to serve. The world's way of leading people is to use its position of power and authority to lord it over people. The rulers of the ancient world or the rulers during the days of the disciples were considered great based upon their ability to conquer other nations and lands. The disciples knew this to be true because they didn't have to look very far. The Roman Empire was conquering the world around them. We also don't need to look very far, do we? We see it. Just turn on the TV or show up to work. See it with men and women who have places of authority and they use their power ultimately to sort of get what they want. I think about this as a parent. Sometimes we do it as parents as well because we get a little too tired. We become a little bit selfish and we can wield that amount. There's wisdom needed here, but I'm just talking from my own experience where sometimes I selfishly would just say, no, we're not doing that. And one of the reasons why we're not doing this is because I just didn't want to do it. And as a dad, we don't have to do it because I'm a dad and I said we don't have to do it. Now, there's a place for that. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm just saying there's a little bit of selfishness in all of us. And the temptation to rule like the world in which Jesus is sort of confronting the disciples with, it exists in our hearts. It's something we need to learn to fight and push back. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But it's the world in which we live in. And we see it all around us. Bosses lead this way all the time. Politicians lead this way way too much. Using their power and authority ultimately to serve their own agenda. That's the way the world does it. But this is not leadership, at least it's not the way we are called as believers to live and lead in the kingdom of God. Jesus said the following, verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. Just because the world leads this way, Jesus is saying, if you're my disciples, it should not be so among you. Don't let it be named among you. Don't go down that road. Don't use your position of authority to just lord it over those that you have authority over. Instead, Jesus defines for us how we're to live and how we're to lead. Verse 43. He said, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Let me read that again. This is one of those verses that like, we just need to commit to memory. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. That's not the way the world around us thinks, is it? But in God's kingdom, Jesus is instructing us. This, this is what it looks like. For us to be one of his disciples. He calls for us to pursue biblical greatness. And by pursuing biblical greatness. It means that we lay down our lives. For the good of those around us. True greatness is achieved by serving. Again James Edwards in his commentary. Wrote the following. He says the preeminent virtue 
of God's kingdom is not power, not even freedom, but service. Ironically, greatness belongs to the one who is not great. And so this quote right here kind of helps shape why when I would say, when you think about a believer and you think about, okay, what is one of the signs of a genuine believer? I would say service is one of those signs. The way James Edwards says, he just says, the preeminent virtue of God's kingdom is not power, not even freedom, but service. It's service. It's, It's continually laying down your life for the good of others. It's picking up a cross, denying yourself, following Christ by serving Him through obedience and serving those around you. And he just says it in this way, it's being a slave to all people. Greatness is not achieved by being first. Greatness is achieved by being last. This is why, like, I'm going to go off on a little wild sort of road for a second. Just look up Luke 6. Luke 6, verse 30, you can go 30 through 36. There's a, there's a section there where it's just, it talks about loving an enemy. It's, it's just radical. It's radical because it says if, if somebody steals your jacket, what should you do? You give him your shirt. Somebody punches you on this side of the face, what should you do? You give him the other side of the face. Somebody steals from you, what should you do? You give it to him. Somebody abuses you, what, what should you do? It says you pray for them. And then the whole point in verse 35 where he gets to it, and he just says, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. That's the motivation for radically serving and loving people like that. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have courage. There's a, that's a whole different message. Okay? We're just talking about serving here. But the whole, the whole sort of motivation to love radically and to serve radically in this sense, if you look at verse 35, it just says, For he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Verse 36 says, Be merciful. For he is merciful, okay? The, the whole motivation is that Christ has loved us in this way. He's kind to the ungrateful and evil. That ungrateful and evil, that's us. And so in a similar way, when we think about, okay, the Christian life is about serving. It's about laying our lives down. We say, well, where, where does that motivation come from? Why, why is it so important for us to, to have that mindset And to want to lay our lives down. Well, verse 45, he goes on and he writes the following. It said, For even the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does that do for you? Just curious. Let me read it again. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why do we pursue serving others? It's not to get what we want. It's not. The reason we serve our spouse, the reason we serve our kids, the reason we serve one another in the context, the reason you serve 
your employees, the reason you serve your boss, the reason you serve your customers, the reason you serve your neighbors, ought to be found right here in verse 45. It's really not about gaining anything. It's because we have a Savior in Jesus Christ whom God sent into this world. This is God coming to earth, fully deserving of being served because He's God, the creator of all things. He stepped into our world. He lived His life here and He walked among us. And He came not to be served, but to serve. And how he served was by giving up his life on the cross so that we might be forgiven, that we might be declared righteous and brought into a right relationship with God the Father and have the hope of spending eternal life with him. We didn't earn this. Our Savior served us by laying down his life for us. So again, I ask this question, what does verse 45 mean to you? How does it affect your heart? Does it affect your heart? Does it it sort of move the needle in the sense of like feeling this, this passion to want to pursue biblical greatness? To want to give your life up? We have this little saying in our home, but it means so much more than the saying. The saying is, don't pass it up. Anybody else know this? Don't pass it up pick it up. It's a Publix thing, right? So you're walking in the parking lot. They teach their employees there. If you see it, don't pass it up, pick it up. And so that's just sort of been this thing in our home. But ultimately what it means is if if you don't get it, who else is going to get it? Like, do you think somebody else wants to just sort of follow you around all day and clean up after you? But there's more to that as well. The point is we're called to serve. Christ has served us and he has saved us and he has set us free to stop thinking so much about ourselves and to think about those around us. And I will say this, I'm going to end with this because I I feel like there's some wisdom needed here. Disciples of Jesus Christ are servants. And I think at times it takes some wisdom to know what serving looks like. Sometimes it is really simple. You just pick up things. Sometimes it's simple. You just show up at a friend's house and and you help them move or you help them paint or you help them fix something. Sometimes serving looks like giving money generously to those in need. Sometimes serving might look like opening your home to refugees in this area. Sometimes serving might look like not giving somebody what they want when they want it. So there's wisdom needed. And so what I would say in those tricky situations, I would say, this is how I live. doesn't mean you have to live this way. It would be, when in doubt, give your life away. And I would add to that, when in doubt, bring others into your life to help you evaluate the situation as you prayerfully consider, what does serving my brother or sister or my neighbor look like in this situation? Because again, sometimes serving means you've got to be courageous and say the things that need to be said. But I think in a, in a simplistic way, we just, we pick up a cross, we follow Christ, and we trust Him for the results. 
I don't know that we're going to get there on the last day and the Lord, or we're going to think to ourselves, man, I served too much. I gave away too much. You know what I mean? As we're standing there face to face with our Savior who gave up his life for all. I don't know that we'll stand there on that final day and think to ourselves, I wish I would have kept that. I wish I wouldn't have given up that day. I wish, in a way, I wish in a way I would have given up all my energy here and I would have just saved a little bit. The Lord calls for us to pick up a cross. True disciples of Christ serve. I, I love this about our church. We have servants all over this place. Constantly giving away your your lives. And I just want to challenge us and encourage us as a church, keep doing it. I know you get tired and grow weary in doing good, but, but don't give up. Keep trusting the Lord. Keep sacrificing. Serving the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day. Thank you for the opportunity just to gather together, sit before your word. Lord, we want to honor, we want to glorify you. Lord, we want to give our lives away. And I just ask that, Lord, you would fill us all with your spirit. Lord, because serving can be exhausting. It's tiring. Lord, I pray for those, Lord, who are growing weary in it, Lord, that you would encourage them, that you'd build them up, that you'd surprise and delight them with a word of encouragement. You'd bless them. And you'd bless us as a church that, We'd continue just to create this culture, Lord, that you have called for us to create one of sacrifice, one of service, one of generosity towards one another and the world around us. And so, Lord, would you bless us and would you bless us as we leave here today? Would you protect us this week and would you give us opportunities for the mission you've called us to, we pray in Jesus name. Amen.